morning. We have two Bible readings this morning. Um, The first reading is from Colossians 3, verses 11 to 14. It's Colossians 3, 11 to 14. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is sorry, but Christ is all and in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The second reading is from Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. It's Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello and good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you today. As well with those watching online, uh, we're so happy that we can worship God with you in this way together. Uh, Before we begin, why don't we pray? God, we thank you that today we get to be with you as well. And not for any reason other than we have the opportunity knowing that many others do not share in that same freedom. And so help us today to be aware of your Spirit's presence with us as we continue. Amen. All right. I have a couple questions that I'd like us to reflect on as we begin. And so remembering back as far as you can to when you were a child and you get to decide on on that age, you know, were there ever times or was there anything specific that you can remember that would overwhelm or make you feel uncomfortable? And then presently, as you are, whether you're a youth or an adult, is there anything now that makes you feel overwhelmed or uncomfortable? Thinking about the two time, or thinking about those comparisons, is there anything that's the same? Has there been any changes for you? What I was used to, uh, sorry, my pages got out of order. Ah, double-sided. When I was a kid around five years old, my parents bought a house in a different part of Brampton. And so we moved. And the thing is, I was really excited about moving. We were getting a new house, I got my own room. But what I didn't realize until after moving was that I wouldn't know any of the people at this new school. And so starting at this new place, what I quickly realized, you know, was that all of the stuff that I was interested in, everything that I thought was funny or even just wanted to talk about, that wasn't really shared in common with my peers. 
I even got made fun of for, for liking things like Power Rangers, which is a bit ridiculous because Power Rangers is amazing, right? Now, I was able to find a couple friends, so it, I'm not saying this was a horrible time or anything, but I think what really made me uncomfortable was that I felt like an outsider in what was my only real community. And so little Jeremy started to feel this way in other group settings as well, and not just at school. Whenever I had to be in front of groups of people, uh, whether for school projects or something else, uh, I didn't really quite know where or how to fit in. And so I'd feel more uncomfortable and feel more overwhelmed, which is ironic considering what I'm presently doing. Um, and because I was a kid, you know, I'd often communicate these feelings in different ways, and it would usually come out as, as silly or disruptive behavior. But that only ostracized me more from my peers. Or at the very least, it created expectations for what others, uh, what others could expect from me and assume what I offered. But the truth is that this school actually had a very different culture than what I was used to. And for a while, I felt as though I didn't belong or I couldn't belong, even though I had every reason to feel as though I belonged there. When we talk about culture, a lot of the time, the, the, the conversation goes towards ethnicity and race. But really, culture describes our behavior and attitudes when we are part of different people groups. And the thing about people groups is that you know, what is cu culturally accepted shifts and, and changes over time, and especially between and within generations. We are continuing our series on the kaleidoscope community, which is this idea of many different pieces as one image coming together in unity. And that image reflects the beauty of, of our triune God. And the place of community in the church is such an important part of that conversation. And a lot of the time, we think it's easy, uh, or we, we have a lot of reliance on the in-person activities and programs that we run, and we assume that those things that we're doing is what helps people feel welcome uh, and, and as though they're a part of the community. But the truth is, what we're talking about in having this kaleidoscope community is actually really hard to foster and almost impossible to create. Now, some of you may, may be already aware of this, uh, but for those who, who are not, um, presently, I am in shorts and a t-shirt doing this. And I wonder how my clothing makes you feel. This is not a Halloween costume. I, I didn't come as someone, you know. But I can imagine that when, when I first started talking and, and, you know, made my way up here, those who noticed may have had thoughts like, you know, did he forget he was speaking today, you know? Or, or maybe it was like, you know, pastors really shouldn't be wearing that right now, like on stage, right? Others might just be, you know, happy. Hey, he's wearing something, so thank God for that. <laughs> it's, interestingly enough, what I wear and what other pastors wear while preaching or speaking from places of spiritual authority, this has a deep impact on many people and in different ways. What is then said from this place might often be ignored because there may uh, exist feelings of disrespect or a blatant disregard of what is expected as a pastor during a worship gathering. And in the same way, while many Christians have thoughts and feelings that move towards frustration or even anger, there are also others, even with, uh, with opposite views, who, who may be wondering, how is this relevant at all? And some may be even you know, seeing this as a radical statement that they agree all because the value of formal or appropriate clothing and church community 
are not shared unanimously. Our views are just too different. The church I grew up going to, uh, for the most part, was somewhat similar to Spring Garden, and in a, in a few ways. But one of the major ways is, is our congregants, the majority of our congregants, uh, we, we have a casual dress code for, for Sundays. And, and that was something I really appreciated because like many kids, uh, I didn't really enjoy being forced to, to dress up formally for any occasion. And something I learned later on as an adult was that this church that I grew up in, uh, it, it wasn't actually always a part of their norm to, to have a casual dress code. And it actually all happened and, and started with, with one decision. You see, there was this guy who was invited by a member of the congregation just to come and be a part of the uh, Sunday morning. And this person was new to faith, right? And they were unfamiliar with a lot of the, the Christian and church culture uh, that they were, they were in. And when he, when he was asked how he was feeling about the church, uh, as he was getting to know the people, he said he really liked it a lot, uh, but he, he felt a bit uncomfortable. And he didn't feel as though he, he fit in quite well. And one significant part of that feeling, of feeling like an outsider, was that he didn't have the money to wear formal clothing. So for him, his Sunday best was actually jeans and a t-shirt. But even beyond that, he didn't understand the whole point in, in dressing differently for Sunday. And no one could give him an, uh, an answer that was sufficient other than, you know, that's just what we've always done. But apparently the pastor's knowledge of this, uh, it, it prompted him to wear something different the next Sunday. And so he, he dressed a little bit more casually. And I don't even think he even acknowledged um, the, the difference. But it, it wasn't long after that, that dressing casually became more normal for many people in the church. And it allowed the community to grow in a certain way as it removed a lot of what was a barrier for many people. And strangely enough, Years later, and even in a completely different church environment and context, that pastor's choice and the community's participation ultimately led other people, including myself, to feel more comfortable and part of that church community. Now, my point here doesn't actually have much to do with the clothing I'm wearing, and I'm not advocating uh, to preach in shorts, uh, mainly because I, I like pants, but um, that's also not the point. Uh, what we're actually talking about today is, is, this morning, in terms of having a kaleidoscope community, is integration. Or a better way of understanding this, it's bringing together the different parts as the one image. If you've been following along in our book series, Reading the Beautiful Community, this is being reflected in chapter seven. And, and the author discusses this a bit, uh, but primarily focuses on it through the lens of, a, uh, of racial uh, integration. And while there's so much value uh, to approaching this through a racial perspective, integration is, is much larger than that. Uh, and it's very multifaceted. And so I want to look at it a bit differently because the feeling that is reflected in a kaleidoscope community is actually one that allows us to ultimately say, you know, we belong here. My presence is valued and matters here. My presence with your presence is one, and together we are the church, or at least our church is one part of that. In the two passages we read this morning, the second uh, is from Revelation 7, and we're going to look at that uh, again as it comes on the screen. And it says this, after I looked and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This passage, it, it gives us a glimpse of something that is beautifully captured. And it's an eventual reality where all creation will be reconciled to God. And reconciliation, that meaning, it, it's a restoring of relationship. This is a, the kaleidoscope community in a sense. But when we imagine this, this part of scripture, when we imagine it actually happening, in what tradition is it being done in? Right? Or, or is this being done uh, as Anglicans? Is this a Baptist tradition? Is it the tradition that I feel the most comfortable in or, or the one that you or someone else does? Right? Do we take turns on how it goes? Because there's a lot of different worship songs that exist. But what does that really look like? Our faith derives ultimately from Jewish tradition. And so their stories are also part of our story. And when we look at the history of God's people, there's a pattern uh, that we fall in, in in trying to preserve something at the cost of becoming something greater. Israel's call was to be a light to the nations, being a tangible form of God's love for humanity by living differently. And through the prophet Samuel, we see uh, Israel's fear and wanting to be led by a king, just like the nations that they had experienced and seen. But they weren't meant to be live, uh, led by a king, uh, by, by human king. They were actually meant to be led by God as their king. And eventually Israel as a nation has an internal struggle. And it splits from itself and becomes known as two nations, Israel and Judah. And then the Babylonians invade uh, the promised land. And all that remains is this one remnant part of Judah and a diaspora of Jewish people. And the term Judaism, you know, identifying Jewish people, it comes from that remnant of Judah not Israel. And, you know, this is a very fast summary glancing over generations of people and a lot of significant moments in Scripture. But again, their story is part of our story. And it speaks really well into how even today, the family of God often makes choices that, leads towards, that lead towards division instead of unity. All for the sake of preserving something at the cost of becoming something greater. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul is writing to a community of people that are the fruit of his fruit in ministry. And what I mean by that is, is some commentary writers, uh, or at least the, the few that I've read, believe that the Colossian church was brought together by, by someone named uh, Epaphras. Uh, I'm, I'm not good at knowing how to say his name, so uh, bear with me on that. But, but Epaphras was a, uh, a, gentle, a Gentile convert who responded to the ministry that Paul had been leading. And he may have led a ministry specifically for the Gentile Christians who were the recipients of this letter because part of what they needed encouragement for was feeling as though their place as new Gentile believers in the church was in question or at least what was needed or required of them to be considered as part of God's people. Sam even talked about, about this uh, last week, you know, with Peter sitting down uh, and, ex and having this experience at Cornelius' house. 
Up until then, the Gentiles were not even seen as part of this picture. And, and there was a fear of losing their Jewish identity. And that was preventing them from embracing this new reality. The early church was started by Jesus' disciples. And while the name wasn't coined at the time, they were indeed Jewish Christians who knew, their, who knew the faith that Jesus taught and led, uh, led them in as a part of the Jewish tradition. It wasn't its own thing. But many Jewish Christians were upset at how Gentiles could become part of God's family. And as a people group with deep-rooted heritage and generational trauma, it made absolute sense that when a Gentile was to become part of the church, that it would mean they would follow and, and take on a lot of the traditions uh, and, and rituals that their culture had. Because at the time, Christianity the only culture that it had was Jewish. And that Jewish culture had a very large bias against Gentiles. But Paul in his ministry shows a rationale, the rational for why you know, Gentiles didn't need to participate in all these traditions and rituals. And for a group of people who felt like outsiders to receive an encouragement from a prominent figure such as Paul, especially you know, while he's in prison, this message was to give them hope. And so we're going to look at that passage in Colossians 3 as it comes up. Awesome. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I can imagine the Colossian Christians reading this whole letter and this part being both hard and encouraging. Because if we're reading this as people who felt like outsiders, Paul is asking and calling on them to remember that truly as God's people, taking on, you know, just becoming compassionate and, and becoming more kind, becoming humble, patient, and even forgiving others, that's all natural to the call to be faithful to Jesus in our journey with God. And as Paul continues, the call for listening and growing in our faith, you know, while also forgiving another who is against you, this creates an image showing a relationship between people that, uh, that we actually need each other. It shows and highlights that importance. And what, all of this while turning away from teaching that we know is not true. And for them, this was mainly that there was more required of them to be part of the community. I don't know the result of the tension of the Colossian church and whether or not they were able to reconcile, but I know that we as people who create community from within the setting of Spring Garden Church, we have a place here together uh, that stands out. And we have an important question to ask. How do we come together? And when we try to answer this, there's you know, a lot of pressure to, to usually come about it from our own efforts, our efforts in getting to know each other. And, and that is important. It is important that we put an effort to getting to know one another intentionally because who we are are people made in God's image. And that allows us to know a part of God that we would not come to know unless it, we, we get to meet you. And in the same way, an intentional effort is, is required 
to know and get to know a community that you want to be a part of. But is it really out of our own effort from either side that makes a community as beautiful as a kaleidoscope? A few weeks ago, we talked about our creation and where we find our true, true identity. Because what makes us who we are is not only a collective of our experiences or, or our ethnicity, our heritage, or racial background. What makes us who we are is the image that we were created in. We are made in God's image, and the significance is countless, and there's so many reasons, but for me, the main reason is that this is where we find our inherent value. It is a value that says you matter so much, and so do I. And at the very core of that, we are, as God's people, created uniquely and wonderfully made. Our, indiv our individuality in itself is what makes us valuable. It's what justified you and I to have a place together here as a church, when all other standards in life say there's so many reasons that we shouldn't. The church is a gathering of people in a world that needs to know they have a place here. The church is where human-made boundaries that separate us in society are non-existent, and it allows us to come together equally as one. Because the lie that we're told from the moment that we're born is that unless you or a person uh, shows or, or contains a, a, something useful, you're not valuable. You are not, if you're not useful, you are not valuable. And that is a lie. Individually, God's relationship with us allows us to grow through the different encounters that we have in our journey with him. And we end up finding the good things that help us experience the fullness of life as, a, as we were created to have. And we need to remember that the image of God inside us is what makes us distinct from one another. And it also captures all of our interests, all our hobbies, and in every way, you know, all the ways that we would describe ourselves. That is individually unique to who God has made you to be. God's made us to be. And when we live life with God intentionally, we are led by his spirit into the presence of one another. Because the truth of creating kaleidoscope community is it's not a result of our own effort. It's a result of God's spirit leading and moving us into community with one another. And this happens naturally when we get to know one another as we find and create common interests that are then valued and shared within the community by the community members. And when we celebrate together, but also mourn and care for each other through hardships, that is where God leads us in community to one, with one another. When the, within a communal perspective, the more involved we are, the more connected we feel. And if you're wondering what ways you can be involved, you know, you can meet with me, and I'm happy to share with you, you know, our youth and children's ministry and all the places that you can be in. You know, we have cookies. Um, but on a more serious note, each of us has been created to grow and discover how we can offer ourselves and be involved in the operation of the community and ministry of our church. And we just need to find that together. The passage from Revelation 7 that we read earlier is a trajectory for God's church. It is the direction that we are moving in, and we don't really get a choice uh, or much control in that, though we'll probably enjoy it. And when we get there and experience this, it will look very different to how all of our worship uh, traditions, both past, or not both, but past, present, and future, right? It's not going to look like that. But that is the direction that God is heading toward. 
and the tradition that we will one day worship in is the one that God sets for his kingdom. And we have to ask both individually, but also together as a community, how do we want to be a part of that with him? Because we get to start creating that now. And I don't have a lot of answers to what this looks like, mainly because, you know, this isn't what this morning is about, but also I'm only one member of this community. The answers to this question are are found by us together as God leads. And I encourage you to consider your role here. Consider your role with us, whether you've been attending for a long time or whether you're new, whether you're still a youth, you know, learning who you are, or if you're an adult, and you may or may not know that either. You have a place here. And what ultimately limits us in cultivating a community that slowly becomes like that of Revelation 7 is our imagination in creating and finding new ways that lead to deeper and meaningful communal life that is also spiritually edifying while reflecting the beauty of our diversity together as many parts that are just one image. Before I uh, hand things back to the music team, uh, I just want to say, you know, the last couple years have been really hard for many of us and in, in a lot of different ways. And while we want more than anything to feel like things are back to normal again, the truth is we're most likely in a period where we are learning how to create a new normal again. And while we are most likely not going to be able to reach the vision of worship depicted in Revelation 7, you know, probably not tomorrow or even in any of our lifetimes. What opportunities do we have together to start moving in that direction now? What kind of faith legacy are we creating and setting up for the children and youth of Spring Garden Church to carry on? When we think of, when we think of church community, the beauty that is reflected should be really understood in contrast to the way the world works. And I see that mainly through the creating of systems that uh, we inevitably put our false hope in. And when those systems fail, it causes us to fear, similar to how our Jewish ancestors feared. The fear that we feel makes it harder for us to connect to the community that we support, who also supports us back. But when we do connect with others, when we do allow for this to happen, we're allowing an opportunity for God to move in unimaginable ways. Because life with God leads us to being able to imagine something that is or was unimaginable, kind of like the patterns on a kaleidoscope. Amen.